Well, as we get moving this morning, I want to share for us. It's kind of strong. Did you did you fix it? Um, I want to start out. Um, last year, we began what we called our Reach Initiative, and it was a three pe- three phase project where we were going to spend um, some money renovating our auditorium and updating it, both the technology and the, the lighting, the carpet, all of that stuff, which you see has been done. Um, and the second part of that, that project, the REACH initiative, was to give our, re, our children's ministry a refresh, to pull the wallpaper off the walls, to texture, to paint, to put new lighting in and new carpet, and just update it and freshen it up a little bit. And we're kind of moving towards that as that project gets ready to start. Um, part of this, we didn't want to do this, this big, long three-year commitment, though. We said we wanted to do three goal days, um, one each year, beginning last year, and I think it's safe to say that God just absolutely blew us away. And one day, this church gave $530,000 to make sure that this um, church had reach far into the future. And so, coming up October 13th is going to be our second goal Sunday of our REACH initiative, where we're pouring again into people and to our children. And as I said in the beginning of this project, as we talked about REACH, REACH is not just simply about money and making sure we have nice facilities. Our REACH initiative is about us reaching into the future and touching the future lives of people who will be a part of this church body and this church family. And as we continue to grow, there are more and more things we're coming up and experiencing shortage in space um, and chairs. As as I said a few weeks ago, I walked through the children's wings a few weeks ago, and we had kids sitting up on counters during class because there wasn't enough space in chairs. And so that is an awesome problem to have. But with that, yeah, absolutely. With that comes the need to address some of those problems. And so coming up on October 13th, we're going to have an opportunity again. So begin praying about what God is asking you to do to contribute to be a part of the future of this church and especially pouring into the life of our kids. The amazing thing is last year out of that, that project, um, the 850000 that we said we needed to do this, um, at the conclusion of this year, we're only going to owe about 200000 And so that is an amazing, amazing thing to say about a church. Um, And our goal at the end of this project is to be 100% debt-free again. Um, We don't want to carry debt because it allows us to do so many more things for the kingdom and for the gospel. And so please be praying and be a part of that. On the 22nd of this month, we're going to begin 21 days of prayer leading up to this. Again, it's not praying for money. This is praying for children and people's lives to be touched through the gospel. And we're going to also do another 40 hours of prayer where we're going to have our building and you're going to be able to come up here for 30-minute blocks and you'll sign up beginning next week, um, beginning on a Friday night, I think the 27th of October. And we're going to ask you to walk through our children's ministry spaces and just pray over our hallways and our classrooms um, and the children that are going to meet in there. So please, again, be praying that God will richly bless us. If you were not, I keep putting this down, if you were not, We have some of these um, here last year. We have some of these in the foyer at the Welcome Center. You can grab one. They're also on our website, a digital version of this, and it will also be on our Shiloh Road app hopefully early this week. So you can find it there if you don't want a paper copy that you'll lose. So 
Today we begin a new series called Uncommon, Becoming the Beloved Community of God. And it is from the book of Romans, and so we're going to spend the next nine weeks here. When my wife and I first were married, um, actually right before, I found out about an interesting family tradition they had. Every um, Christmas, their family, her mom's side particularly, would gather at her aunt's house in Wichita Falls. And all of the family, and her family is large, her mom is one of eight brothers and sisters, and so there are a lot of people at this house. And I walk in for the very first time. Um, This is about a month before we actually get married, a month and a half before we actually get married, not knowing hardly anyone in there. And there are about 75 other people in this house who I have no idea who they are. And luckily enough, two of her uncles were named Gary, so it was kind of a safe home base for me where I could go back to them and say, hey, Hey, Gary, because I could remember his name, of course. <laughs> hey, Gary, who's that? He, you know, that's the crazy cousin that you don't really want to be around and talk to, kind of avoid him. And hey, hey, Gary, who's that? Well, that's your crazy father-in-law, kind of avoid him. <laughs> They're not here this morning. <laughs> so it's our little secret. And, and it was an interesting dynamic. And, and if you've become um, part of a family... If you've been married into a family, it's, it is an interesting dynamic because you didn't grow up with those people. You're just kind of transplanted in. And all of a sudden, you start to become part of this whole family because of these vows that you exchange. Because in accepting this other person, you're now accepting this broader family. And it creates a really interesting dynamic because you go from basically being strangers to now be, being connected in, in a really interesting um, way, a beautiful way, but still, if you kind of step back and think about it, a strange way. And we're comfortable with our groups. I, I think we have a tendency to draw lines and define groups because they make us feel comfortable. We know who's in and we know who is out. And so we form our groups, and we draw our lines, and we know who belongs on the inside, and we know who belongs on the outside. One of the things, though, you see throughout the, the, the course of the Bible is it begins with this very much holistic, others-focused world, and then as sin enters the world, there is this move to this very individualistic worldview, where it's about me and what I want, um, my brother's made me angry, so I'm going to kill him. We're going to go do what we want and create the world we want to create. But it moves from this very individualistic worldview to a very tribal-centric worldview. And I think it's beautifully displayed in, in the Tower of Babel. As these people come together and they start saying, well, we're going to create this name for ourselves." And it seems like God takes this idea of this tribal-centric group, and he says, okay, well, if we're going to have this tribal-centric group, we're going to begin, and we're going to have this new formation of people. And this tribe is going to be different. They're going to be for the purpose of blessing all the other tribes and all the other peoples of this world. But as that tribe grows, the hope is that it's not just this tribal-centric worldview, but that it becomes this very much world-centric view. And you hear throughout the the gospel and throughout Acts and Romans and some of the other letters that the gospel wasn't just for this one group, this one tribe, that it was for everyone and for the whole world to come and be a part of. 
this invitation to be one, this invitation to community. And I think more than ever, we see that, that tendency to draw lines and define groups in our society, to make sure we know who is in and who is out. You see it politically, is people drawing their lines and defining their group, and it's very exclusive. You can't be a part of us. And we have a tendency to do it racially, to draw lines and define groups based on the color of our skin. We do it economically. You live in this area. You make this much money. And we tend to group around the people that make us feel comfortable. I think we do it as churches, too. We want to define our group, the right group, the one who has it all together, and make sure that no one who doesn't belong to our group can be a part. And you wonder, well, why is there that tendency? Why is that part of our nature? And I think it's pretty simple. Groups provide security for us. Because if we can draw lines and we can define groups and we can make sure we are the ones on the inside, then we have a sense of security, a sense of belonging. And my guess is, for many of you, you have been on the outside looking in to a group where you feel like you are an outcast and where you don't belong and where you aren't included. But my guess is the opposite is also true, that you've been on the inside of a group that you felt a part of, that you felt you belonged to. And it sometimes seemed difficult for people who were on the outside of your group to come in. And we all, I don't think this is a church thing. I think this is a human nature thing. We are all wired this way, and it comes down to security. We feel safe when we're with the people who talk like us, act like us, think like us, live like us. There is a sense of security, and it elevates you to a, a place of power and privilege. And I think more than anything else in this book, Paul is going to attack power and privilege. He's going to attack those who are in a place of power and privilege, who are allowing, not allowing their power and privilege to allow others into this group. And so I want to start um, this morning with the context of Romans. I want to talk um, just kind of big picture of the book as we get going. This book is a letter written to some house churches in Rome. And it's written by a guy named Paul who begins his life as a man named Saul. And Saul is walking on this road to Damascus, and he has this encounter with Jesus. He's blinded for three days, and when he receives his sight, he decides because of what Jesus has done, because of this encounter that he's had, that his life is going to change, it's going to be transformed, and he becomes a minister to what is called the Gentiles. And for Paul, Paul was an Israelite, and he was passionate about Israel, the law, and the traditions of Moses, what it meant to be a part of that group and to be connected. 
and for those Gentiles who were outside of this people. They were outside of the lines, outside of the boundaries. Paul felt like it was his mission to go to those people and invite them to be a part of this exclusive group. This exclusive group who felt like they had the truth of God's word, who they were God's family. And he begins this ministry at a really um, tumultuous time in Rome throughout the empire because there is this transition in power from a guy named Claudius Caesar, and here's his picture, to a guy named Nero Caesar. And this happens in 54 approximately A.D. The letter is written in 56 A.D. But the reason it's important to know who Claudius Caesar is is because he creates some of the turmoil within the city at this time. Claudius Caesar is the emperor, and his wife has an affair on him. And it becomes very public knowledge, and he is shamed and he's laughed at. And so to fix the problem, he goes and marries his niece, which makes the problem worse. And it becomes very public and shameful, and it's out there, and everyone knows who Claudius Caesar is. And so Claudius is trying to redefine himself and trying to prove himself. And there's this little group of Christians popping up in Rome. And he says, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get them out of here. I'm going to show people that I am still as Roman as Roman can be. And you read about this in Acts chapter 18. He says, they met a man, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So he expels them, basically exiles them, sends them out of the city. And what it why that's so important is because the church in Rome had begun with these um, Jewish synagogue converts who started creating their churches and their Christianity as a very Torah-observant Jewish Christian culture where we're going to follow the laws of the Torah as a part of what it means to be the church of Jesus. And so these Jews who started the churches in Rome are exiled and they're cast out. And then there's this transition of power in 54 AD. And these Jewish Christians, because Nero at age 17, who becomes Caesar, age 17 becomes the Roman Caesar, basically forgets this decree by Claudius. And these Jews begin to trickle back in slowly and, and not all of them. And they come back in after being gone for about five years, and they find the church that they basically began does not look like it did when they left. We had this very Torah-observant Jewish culture, and now we've come back, and these Gentiles have forgotten all the stuff that we taught them. And these Jews come back in, and they're looking at these Gentiles saying, hey, you need to observe the Sabbath. Hey, you need to be circumcised. You need to eat kosher. And you have these Gentiles who have been basically making it on their own for the past five years, looking back and saying, what are y'all doing back? Why, why, why are y'all here? And by the way, why are you bothering us with all of these old traditions and rules and laws? We're free in Christ to do whatever we want. It does not matter. Can you see how a conflict might start to emerge? Because you have these two groups 
these Gentile Christians who have been living and doing church perfectly fine without the Jews. And then you have the Jews coming back into the city saying, hey, this is not the church we started. This doesn't look, y'all are singing all these new songs. Y'all are doing all this new stuff, and this is not Jewish enough for us. And it creates this problem, the biggest problem. They are not Torah-observant Christians. And so Paul is going to write this letter to this church, really challenging them and challenging their understanding of what he calls the gospel. Now, understand in this culture, the word gospel is a very loaded and significant term. The word gospel is a political announcement. It is a proclamation that there is a new king. And so he steals this very much Roman word, euangelion, that means good news or gospel. This announcement that there is a new king. And so whenever there is a new king, for instance, in 41 AD, Caligula dies and Claudius takes the throne and he becomes Caesar. And so there is this proclamation throughout, the, the Rome, throughout Rome, throughout the entire empire, there is a new king. There is a new one who sits on the throne, and his name is Claudius. And Claudius dies in 54, and Nero becomes the new Caesar. And there is this announcement, this euangelion, this proclamation that there is a new king. And so Paul picks up this word, and he uses it in a very, um, very pointed, poignant way. Because he wants people to understand that there is a new king. That Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, has now become king of the whole world. Not, not just of this empire. Not just submit to him if you're a Roman citizen. But everyone, everywhere, Jew and Gentile alike, submit your life to this new king. And so Paul uses this term, and it is so politically loaded. It has so much backbone and background in Jewish heritage. And he writes this letter, and you can basically break the letter down into four different sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 4, where the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And then in chapters 5 through 8, the gospel creates a new humanity. And then in 9 through 11, the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. And then 12 through 16, the gospel unifies the church. And it's this, this structure. And I think you could more simply even say 1 through 11 is really this theological foundation, the real, the real the praxis, the, the practicality of the theology. And then 12 through 16 is what it looks like to become the beloved community of God. What it actually looks like to live out what we say we believe. And I think for so long, and because if you've, if you've read Romans before, you know it is a very heavy, heavy book. Um, it, it is loaded with deep, deep theology. And I think so many times we read 1 through 11 and we're so tired that when we get to 12 through 16, we just kind of say, well, that's just kind of the application. But I don't think it is. 
I think it's very much Paul's point that we would become this beloved community, the church, one who is unified in Christ, that that is his main point. But it's this theology and this foundation that he places here at the start of the letter that forms everything we do know and understand about what it looks like to be the church. And to understand how this letter kind of plays out, it's read to these house churches. And at this time, most historians will say there's probably around 200, maybe 300 in Rome with the population of a little over a million people. These small little pockets of house churches. This is letter infiltrates too. Praying that this, that these churches will saturate the community around them and bring peace to this world. And so the letter begins with these very much div- div- lines of division this Jews and the Gentiles. And I would imagine in these churches where this letter is read, you kind of have them grouped on their side because we like our groups, and there's comfort in our groups, and we want to make sure we belong in our group. And he begins, I think, looking at the Gentiles, saying to the Gentiles, you know, you, you, you've messed up in chapter 1. And you've lived your life completely out of line with what God wanted. Um, you've, you've done things that are despicable and horrible. And, and you cannot live like this and be a part of God's church. And I would imagine as he's reading this and speaking these words to the Gentiles, you have this other group of the Jews sitting over here who are God's chosen people. That's right. You people over there have messed this up. You've gotten it wrong. You're not right. You are not God's people. But then in chapter 2, Paul turns, I think, to these Jews. And he says, here's the problem. You're more guilty than they are because you've known from the start what it looked like to be the people of God and who God has called you to. And then he begins to say, but there is good news for both groups. There is a way to step out of the systemic sin and death, that cycle that you live within, and find freedom and liberation from that sin and from death. And that hope is called the gospel. And it's that gospel that will unify and bring together. It's that gospel that will have the transformative power over our past, our present, and our future. And the only thing that can bring these groups together is ultimately love and forgiveness. And if, if that transformative power will seep into your church and it will become part of your DNA as the people of God, then you will truly become this beloved community of God, the one he envisioned from the beginning. See, our our theological foundation that we've been working on this entire year, talking about the Imago Dei, the image of God within us, is so important because Paul's understanding is based there, that you were created good, and God gave you good gifts, 
and you took those, God, those God-given good gifts and you used them for things that were, they were never intended for. You took God's creation in a different direction. But through Jesus, through Jesus, there is the possibility of things being made good again, of coming back into community with one another. In, in this world that's so tribal-centric, and so focused on its own groups, and dividing, and and splitting, and drawing lines for safety and security. There is this new way, and all of us, Paul would say, are in the same boat. All of us have been on that journey, and made what was good, given by God, and we've used it for bad. We've taken it our own direction. See, the Bible and Romans, for that matter, are not written just simply to tell you how your sin affects you. It's written to tell you how your sin contributes to systemic sin and death, which you are both a contributor to and a victim of. And Jesus' death and resurrection provides an alternative path and a way to escape the systemic cycle of sin and death. There's a way out. I think ultimately he is addressing the inability of the privileged and the powerful to embody the gospel's inclusive demands to include the disprivileged and the disempowered. See, we draw these lines. And as long as we feel like we're on the inside, that we belong to the right group, then we're in the place of privilege and power. And Paul says, no, that has to come down. Those walls cannot exist if there is going to be peace and unity. There has to be something. What Paul is ultimately getting to is not just this contextual theology in our head, but an actual lived-out theology by destructing or deconstructing privilege and power and replacing it with peace. And so over the course of this series, as we talk about what it looks like to be the uncommon people of God, we're going to work through Romans backwards. I want to start with the end in mind, as Paul really pushes for this unified body, the church. And in our Bible classes, we're going to be going through Romans as well, but we're going to go from the other direction and kind of meet in the middle. But I want us to have this really practical idea of what it looks like to be the church of God. Because it's so easy to get focused on the soteriology, and I want to define real quick, soteriology is the salvation focus of Romans and miss the ecclesiology focus of Romans, the church focus, what it looks like to be this unified body. See, Paul's goal is that this small group of Christians throughout this empire, throughout this city, from different backgrounds, families, cultures, and contexts, could, could truly become a unified body of Christ in spite of their differences, to be advocates of unity and not adversaries. And so the letter begins with this, um, or I'm sorry, it sounds weird, the letter ends with these greetings to these Christians in these churches in chapter 16. These churches 
Um, and he says, I commend to you my sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Canachera. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. And so the way this letter is addressed, it would mean Phoebe is probably the courier of this letter, the one that carries it to these churches, possibly even the reader of to these churches. And she's given this letter to take to these churches because Paul wants them to understand. And if you've ever heard in reading a book, it's always good to jump to the end and look at how it finishes. I want you to look at how it finishes. Paul says in verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in our way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And I think he uses that word good so intentionally right there, connecting it back to creation. And, and it's because he says this next, the God of peace will soon crush the Satan under your feet, which goes back to Genesis 3. Right? And how, how is this Christ, how is this God-made man going to crush the Satan under his feet? He's not going to do it with power. He's not going to do it from a place of privilege. He's not going to do it with might and strength. But he's going to do it through love and forgiveness by laying down his life. Ultimately taking us to a cross and a tomb. A tomb that after three days was empty. A tomb that gives us hope there is a different way to live. And Paul says, if you will form your church, if you will form your community around that, then you will truly become the beloved community of God. That you will truly become people who are different. Because in your gathering, as the church, there will be this sense of unity that goes beyond the political lines we draw, beyond the racial lines we draw, beyond the economic lines we draw, and will truly create this sense of unity that we are the people of God. Here's why Romans is so important to us today. You see everywhere you look, people drawing lines and defining groups. You see everywhere more than ever people who are on the outside looking in and people fighting to make sure their group remains in a place of privilege and power. And it is the gospel of Jesus that tears down those walls that breaks down the barriers and brings unity and hope in the midst of pain and heartache. 
We live in a world that is starving for community. We, we live in a world that is starving for oneness. And yet, everything within us says, no, push back against that and let's go our own separate ways. Draw our lines deeper, define our group tighter, and don't let anyone in. And the gospel is this royal announcement that through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ has become king of the whole world. And he stands with open arms, inviting everyone to come and be a part of his new kingdom, to submit their life to King Jesus, to be made one, to be brought into communion with one another. And it is the beauty that Paul calls the church. And our hope is, our hope is that as we find our identity in the gospel of King Jesus, that it would truly be the source of a new unity that gives a breath of fresh air to a world looking for hope, looking for oneness, looking to be made whole. Father, today, in this place, Father, it is my prayer that your gospel unites us, that your gospel breaks down the barriers, that your gospel brings and speaks truth into our life, and that we find hope in you and you alone. And Father, that our political affiliations, our racial, our economic lines that we draw, the groups that we define would be eradicated and that your kingdom would come to earth as it is in heaven, unified and made whole because of the blood of Christ. Father, it is our hope that we would become this beloved community of your people with hope for the world. And Father, that we as your church would not see ourselves as this exclusive people, but Father, inclusive, bringing more and more people to know Jesus his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.